I'm glad we could be together. Hello. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about tonight, and uh, it's been kind of billed as this thing about uh, about dating and, and being single. And if that's, you know, exactly what you're signing up for, might be a little disappointing. Uh, we're not talking about how to get a boyfriend or girlfriend. We're not going to talk about how to handle your hormones. We're not going to be talking about uh, the evils of sex before marriage or any of the typical things that are discussed in a, in a dating or talk. Uh, what we're going to do is the, the first half of the night is going to be a little bit heady. And um, uh, I really think it's worth it. We kind of, what we did last time is we dove a little bit deeper into relationships than we typically do. And it seemed by your feedback that that was a helpful thing. So we're going to do the same thing this week. We're going to take a look at uh, this idea of triangles, kind of unpack that. We'll do that for the first half of the night. And then the second half of the night, we're going to apply it to being single. And then we're going to apply the same content to being married and to having children in subsequent uh, times together. So we will get around to singleness and dating, but uh, that's going to be at the second half of the night. So let me encourage you especially for this first half, I think for the whole thing, it's really helpful to pull up those notes that you received in the email. Uh, this is not one of those kind of light and fluffy talks. There's going to be a fair amount of content. And so I think you'll really find it helpful if you download that, uh, that PDF and follow along. I think it's going to be really helpful for you. So let's begin by reviewing a little bit of what we talked about last time. We said that the primary way that we're made in God's image is that we're made for a relationship. In Genesis chapter 126, it says, let us make man in our image. So the image of God is in our image. And so to be, a, uh, to be human, to have a fulfilling life, means that we engage in relationship with God and others. That that's the that is what's going on. There's no other kind of hidden agenda that God has. He wants us to have a love relationship with him and with those around us. And then we said this idea that healthy relationships are Trinitarian. Now, that can sound a little bit tricky. All it means is that if you have a healthy relationship with others, it's going to look like a triangle. Uh, God is... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's something about relationship that has three uh, persons to it. And so that what we were saying last time, this is my symbol for God, that just is a Greek symbol. And so you and me, that the only way that you and I are going to be able to have a healthy relationship is if God is part of the triangle. And as soon as you try to erase God out of the triangle, then what ends up happening is there's tension between you and me. And the way that this tension looks is we're either going to do this thing called enmeshing, which is we're going to uh, put kind of too much identity into our relationship with someone else. We're going to want them to be our God. Or for fear of being hurt, we're going to disengage. And so what mostly goes on in relationship is people move back and forth between kind of over-involving themselves in a relationship and then pulling away in self-protection. And it's kind of this dance of a relationship 
which most of us get caught in. What God's spirit does, God's presence does, is he brings kind of balance to the system. And that as we trust in him, we don't go in those extremes of expecting too much of other people or withdrawing. That by his grace, we're able to have a healthier relationship when he's a part of it. So uh, this anxiety, we're going to explore a little bit more this week. And that's our first point, is the drama triangle. To ease our anxiety and to find stability, we create triangles. Remember we talked last time about if there's just a you and a me, it's kind of like riding a bicycle where it's unstable. And so the, the way that we try to create a stable relationship is we try to include a third person. And like a tricycle, that ha- that's more balanced than a bicycle. So inherently, if you're just pursuing a relationship with somebody else, when tension or anxiety comes into that relationship, you're going to look for someone else or something else to provide stability and to ease your anxiety in that relationship. So you're, uh, you might reach out to a supportive friend and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this relationship. Could you help me out? And so they kind of add that extra dimension to the relationship that helps it go better. Uh, what we find in, in lots of relationships is what they'll rally around. The third kind of thing they'll rally around won't be something like God. It will be a hobby or a special interest or even a common problem where they both hate someone and they kind of rally around that. But whatever it is, what we're mostly doing is we're uh, operating inside of a triangle. When you and I experience tension, we try to include something else to, to support us in our relationship. And that can be all kinds of things. We've said a support, a friend, a common interest, a common problem, but it's a way to bring a balance to the system. The problem is, if the, the, the person that we include, by the way, this is one of the reasons why uh, people have children, is they are able to kind of ignore the tension between them as they both focus on their child. Uh, but whatever that other thing is, if it's not God, then a triangle becomes unhealthy. So in anxiety, then people adopt unhealthy styles of relating. They take on a role to kind of manage their anxiety. And so we're going to just draw this triangle. Should that be up a little higher for people to see it, do you think? We're good? Okay. I'll just do it up a little bit higher. So now, uh, again, I know that these things are a little bit more intellectual, but boy, if you can grab hold of this, it is going to explain a lot about how you relate to other people. Here's how it works. Whenever uh, you or I feel stressed in a relationship, we feel uh, anxious, exposed, and so what we do is we kind of wear a mask to hide behind, a way to manage our anxiety. And there's a thing that psychologists have observed, and it's called the drama triangle. And it's three classic ways that we manage our anxiety inside of a relational system or inside of a triangle. And it's, uh, we act as a persecutor, a rescuer, 
or a victim. I've given you a YouTube link in your notes if you want to study this a little bit more. It's a really great link. I think it uses slightly different words, but it's the same kind of principle. So let's look, first of all, at the victim. The victim is the most powerful person in this relational system. They're the most powerful. What's ironic, though, is they feel the most helpless. Victims are afraid of failing. They're afraid of taking responsibility. And so they often talk about feeling helpless and overwhelmed. You know that you're acting like a victim when you say, I've tried everything and nothing works. That's how a victim is going to talk. It's they're just overwhelmed by life and they feel like they're out of control. What they end up doing is blaming others or their circumstances for what's wrong in their life. They say, I've tried everything, and so it must be that person's fault that I'm not doing well. It must be this set of circumstances. If I just uh, had a better job or lived in a, uh, lived in a better apartment or whatever it is, then my anxiety would go down. So there's lots of blame when it comes to being a victim. And what they're ultimately looking for is they're looking for a rescuer to save them. They're the damsel in distress, as it were, and they're looking for the knight in shining armor to make their life go better. What we're going to discover in being single is that this is a classic desire that happens whenever you're a single, that you feel like a victim and you're looking for someone, uh, some boyfriend or girlfriend that's going to solve all of your problems and make you happy. So, uh, but let's go back to this one. So the victim is the classic child, feeling helpless, overwhelmed, looking for help. The rescuer would be the classic mom. They fear tension. They just want everybody to get along. That's the biggest fear. This person is afraid of taking responsibility. The rescuer is afraid of tension and people being out of relationship. And so they try to make everyone happy and they end up enabling victims and keeping them stuck in their neediness. Because what a rescuer loves to feel is valuable and needed and important. And so every rescuer is looking for a victim to save. And every victim is looking for a rescuer to help them stay irresponsible and save them. Now, what this needs is it needs the bad guy, a persecutor. Persecutor is a classic dad. They fear weakness. So this person does not, what their greatest fear will be weakness. This one's afraid of responsibility. This one's afraid of tension or being out of relationship. So this person fears being weak. And so they're fault finders and they lack compassion. There's actually lots of emotion going on, but they don't admit any of it because that would be a sign of weakness for them. And so they use facts to support their position. In the classic position of a, of, a, of a persecutor is with a finger pointed. Somehow blaming, if you guys would just take more responsibility and be more like me, then everything would be fixed and it'd all be fine. So they also blame a lot. And, uh, and they're the, the bad guy that helps the victim feel justified in staying as a victim. And it helps the rescuer say, well, I'm not like them. Look at how nice I am towards you. And so this becomes the person that kind of justifies these two positions. Um, 
their solution is always to take on more and more control, get louder, more angry, but they remain emotionally disengaged from the system. So let me give some examples of this to, uh, to help explain it. Let's say that, uh, that in, in this example, you're the victim and you have a really bad boss. They're, they don't care about you. They're super demanding. They, uh, they just lack any kind of empathy and they just want you to work harder and produce more. And so what will you do inside of this relationship that has lots of tension in it? Well, what you'll do is you'll go off and talk to your friend and explain how bad the persecutor is and you try to get an ally on your side. And if that rescuer says, oh yeah, they're just horrible. I can't believe that you're even still working there. Then you somehow feel justified in staying as a victim in feeling put down by the persecutor, but you developed an ally in order to feel better about yourself. See another example. Uh, this is you again being a victim. It's the most popular position to be in. If you look in society, this is what everybody is fighting to be because it's the most powerful position. You can get everybody revolving around you. And so this is you. And uh, what you really like doing is gaming. Uh, whether it's uh, Call of Duty or Fortnite or whatever you're into. And the idea is, I live such a stressful life or, you know, I'm overwhelmed or I deserve some, some me time and just to enjoy myself. So what I'm going to do, now the rescuer isn't a person anymore, it's a thing, but it still works. And so I'm just going to spend tons of hours just uh, relaxing, emptying my mind, maybe hanging out with my friends. And then uh, who comes along? would be your parents. And you say, how many hours are you spending gaming? Really? Is that what you want to do with your life? Or, you, or this persecutor could be God. And whenever you think of God, you think that he's looking down on you, shaking his head, going, I can't believe how he's spending his time. And so God becomes the, uh, uh, the bad guy. And the more God looks demanding, or the more your parents look demanding, the more you feel justified in gaming. And so you're able to stay in the system and not change. Um, this could also be your spouse, where your spouse is saying, how much time are you spending gaming? Why aren't you spending time with me? Uh, another, another triangle could be that, again, you're the victim because it's, it's typically where we start. Well, I'll show how we change in a moment. And you're doing something that's sinful. Um, you're in a relationship that you know that, that God wouldn't approve of. You're um, uh, looking at pornography. You're doing something that you know that God doesn't approve of, but it helps you feel better somehow. And so you keep doing it. And then God becomes a persecutor that condemns you for just trying to find relief in a sin that you're participating in. That's a triangle. Another way, another triangle is when the persecutor isn't a person, but it's our family of origin. And so as we try to relate to other people, it feels like there's a past that we just can't overcome. There's uh, things that have gone on where we've experienced abuse or misunderstanding or been put down, and we kind of carry that judgment into whatever relationship we're trying to engage in with other people. 
A really uh, clear biblical example is in 2 Kings chapter 21. If you've heard of a King Ahab and his wife's name, the queen, was Jezebel. And they're quite famous in the Bible for being really messed up and evil. There's a story where um, King Ahab goes to a guy named Naboth and says, Hey, your field is really close to my palace. I want a vegetable garden. I'd like to buy your field or I'll give you another field and uh, so I can have my vegetable garden close to my palace. And Naboth says, no, I'm not going to do it. This is my ancestor's plot of land and I'm not going to give it up for you. And so what Ahab does, so we have um, the persecutor is Naboth. He won't, he won't give up uh, his field. And so Ahab becomes a victim and complains to his wife Jezebel. And listen to, uh, uh, well, and so Jezebel hears how Naboth isn't honoring Ahab. And this is what she says. Jezebel, Ahab's wife, said, Is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. He was feeling really grumpy and sad and sullen, which is often how a victim feels. Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard of Naboth, the, Je the Jezreelite. So don't worry, you can stay a victim. I'm going to handle this for you. And she ends up developing a plot to kill Naboth. And then Ahab feels better about himself and gets the land that he wanted. So we see this happening. These three roles are happening, even in scripture, all over the place. Because whenever we engage in relationships, we're always looking to bring stability to those relationships through triads. Now, that's, uh, that's the basic idea, but let's explain in a little bit more depth how this can work. Because while we might have a favored position, where we feel like we enjoy controlling relationships and being powerful, or we like being the person who just helps everybody else, or we feel helpless, what we actually do is we actually rotate between these and we go back and forth. We move around the triangle. When a rescuer gets frustrated with a victim, imagine a, a mom or dad just getting super frustrated with, with their child who's being lazy and irresponsible or disobedient. What the rescuer does is they pop over here and they persecute and get really angry with the child and tell them to smarten up and punish the child. And uh, if the victim starts to feel bad and pretend to change, then they'll go back over to being a rescuer. Or if a victim can't get anybody to save them, they can't find a really qualified rescuer, what they'll do is they'll pop over and be a persecutor and get mad at the people around them, the other family members or their friends, and say, you know, man, I try so hard in this relationship and nobody's grateful for what I do and I can't believe how you guys, uh, you know, behave towards me. And they're trying to create a rescuer in somebody, somebody who's going to feel bad. And as soon as they get somebody to feel bad, then they just pop down back to being a victim and soaking up all the attention. Isn't this horrible? <laughs> but this is what we do all the time. Or when a persecutor feels bad for blaming, uh, what they might do is pop over here to be a rescuer for a while because they feel, they feel guilty for being such a heavy and downer all the time. And so they'll try to be nice to people for a while until um, 
until they feel a little bit better about themselves and then they'll pop back over to be a persecutor again. And finally, when a rescuer gets tired of rescuing, what a rescuer sometimes does is pop down to be a victim and says, man, I've tried so hard, I just need somebody to care for me. And so they get a little bit of attention, they feel better about themselves, and then they pop, pop back up to being rescuing. So uh, here's the thing that you need to understand about this drama triangle, is these are roles that we take on when we're anxious. Nobody's actually growing or changing in this system. It's dysfunctional. Uh, the relationships are kind of like a hot potato, and the anxiety just gets passed around from person to person, but nobody's really changing. So people switch vo roles, but they avoid actually changing. So let me ask you, um, when you grew up, who was who in your family? Uh, were you the victim? Were kind of the, the were, you know, everybody kind of revolved around you? Or did you feel as though you were the rescuer and everybody else was dysfunctional and so you had to be the one to take responsibility for the well-being of the family? Uh, maybe you were the persecutor, that you just were angry a lot and, and wanted other people to change. Uh, what role did you play in your family of origin? What role did the other people in your family play? And it's interesting to be able to see how your family functioned and where you were in the system and how you express your anxiety. So for me, I, uh, I hate the idea of being a victim. I just, I don't want to be needy. I don't want to need anybody. And so where I live is I live between being a persecutor and a rescuer. Uh, I think one of the primary reasons why I became a pastor is because I really enjoy rescuing. It makes me feel good about myself. I don't have to think about my problems. And then uh, I, can, I can look kind and generous, but never really have to face the difficulties that are going on in my life. And if I feel as though people aren't grateful for the way that I'm loving and serving them, quote-unquote, then I can get upset, blame a little bit, feel guilty about that, then pop back over to be a rescuer. That's a little bit about my dysfunction. Um, we also, if you're looking at your notes, we also combine roles. That sometimes there are two that we favor over, over another two. And so you'll see in your notes that if you favor being a rescuer, and a victim, what this looks like is being a martyr. And the martyr is, says, see how helpful I am? See how helpful I am? I deserve some pity. And so if these are your dominant roles, then you probably are going to act like a martyr. And what a martyr does is they see everybody as a persecutor, and they need to be the ones that solve it, or that are the victim of that persecutor. They, uh, and they're always creating a dependency on somebody. If we look at a persecutor and a victim, what this person is, is an addict. And you'll see in your notes that what an addict says is, you made me do it. The reason why I'm addicted to uh, pornography, to substance abuse, to relationships is because there's some, uh, you know, uh, you, now they're acting like a persecutor. You guys have made me do this. I don't want to behave this way, but I have to because of how poorly everybody treats me. 
And so they feel justified in being a victim by uh, how they blame other people for all of their problems. And so they stay helpless, they stay in bondage by blaming other people for their problems. Or, this is what I would be more like, is a survivor. Survivor. Did I do that right? I think I'm missing something. Yeah, there you go. Survivor. So a survivor is... Um, did I spell that right? Yeah. So a survivor says, uh, you know, if somebody says, you know, you know, you have some needs, a survivor will say, what needs? I don't have any needs. And they're, they're too busy being in control or helping other people to ever look at what's going on inside of their heart and the struggles that are going on there. And so these are people who just do what they need to do. They buckle down, try harder. They're an achiever. They accomplish what needs to be accomplished. But it's all in an effort to not look inside and to be vulnerable or needy. Um, so you can see then that this becomes an, an entirely unhelpful way to manage relationships and to deal with reality. So how do we get free? The way that we get free is, uh, let me just get rid of a few words here. Oh, I got you. I just start over. It's easier. So if we have a victim, rescuer, and persecutor, then how do we get free? You'll see this in your notes. What a victim needs to do is anything. <laughs> a victim needs to do something. Well, actually, I should, I should have started with, well, we just jumped down to victims. A victim needs to do. They need to reject feeling helpless and take personal steps toward change. So if you're a victim or you're helping somebody to come out of being a victim, you ask responsibility questions. What's something that you could do right now to change your circumstances? Not what other people could do, but what could you do? So if you're feeling helpless and feeling like you're at, under the control of others, the only way out of that is to take personal responsibility. What a rescuer needs to do is they need to think. As it says in Ephesians, to speak the truth in love. What they need to do is they need to go, Am I really helping? I feel good about all the care that I'm giving, but am I really being helpful? And so rather than just being driven by emotions, they need to think and say, what would be ultimately helpful for this victim? What would be ultimately helpful is maybe not saving them all the time, but actually empowering them to take responsibility themselves. So that's what a, that's what a rescuer would need to do. What a persecutor needs to do is they need to feel, have compassion. And one of the best ways that you can do that is by listening to others and listening to their story. And so instead of just blaming and finger pointing and fault finding, they need to care and then work in a way that's cooperative to empower other people to change instead of just blaming this is what's talked about in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Just a great verse. If you have a tendency toward 
being a persecutor. It's about having compassion and about caring and working cooperatively in humility with others. So what a, uh, what a persecutor will do is they will need to feel, but really they're always going to be a challenger, and that's not bad. We need this in, in our relationships. We need somebody to ask the hard questions and to say, hey, you know, there might be a better way to do this. A rescuer is, is kind and helpful, but now it's more like a coach where they're not, they're not playing the game on behalf of the athlete, but they're helping the athlete succeed. They're not over-functioning, but they're contributing. And then what this person is, is really a creative. This person is able to be creative, take responsibility in new ways. They've tried everything and nothing works. Well, what's, a, what's another, what's a step that we could take? And that's, that's about creativity and about dreaming and having some hope and taking a chance by taking a step forward. So what we're going to do is we're going to um, switch and talk about how this relates to, um, to singles, but I'd like to take a moment and see if any of you have any questions about how this idea of a drama triangle works. So why don't we just take a pause. If you want to write some questions, either uh, privately texting Matt, or you can put it in the chat. Let's see if you have any questions about this idea of a rescuer, persecutor, and victim. Can you, can you see yourself in this? <laughs> Remember, this is about anxiety. This isn't who you really are. This isn't, isn't how God made you. God made us to be challengers and coaches and creatives. But when we get anxious, we kind of devolve into blaming, over-functioning, or feeling helpless. And it's how we approach our relationships. We're going to apply this to what this looks like in being single in just a moment. But it's helpful if you can identify yourself first and how you manage the anxiety in your relationships. Jason has a great question. He was wondering if we combine roles, do we still need to do the same things? Like if we tend to be the martyr or the survivor, um, how do we sort of pick which way to go about it? Yeah, good. So then, uh, so then if you're going to be a... If you're a survivor where you're a persecutor and a rescuer, um, doing things isn't going to be your problem, but feeling and thinking will be. And so you'll just combine, you'll look and you go, am I getting, am I swinging as a survivor? Am I swinging more toward the persecutor side? Well, I need to do some feeling. But am I overwhelmed with emotion and wanting to just make it all better? Then I need to do some thinking. So even though you'll have a, a dominant between the two, you're probably sliding back and forth between these two. And depending on whether you're more on this side or more on this side is whether you'll choose feeling or thinking. And the same with, with any leg. It's not a, a black and white thing. It's we're kind of moving back and forth along a continuum. And depending where we are is what we choose to do. Good question. sort of imagine what thinking or feeling was like, but the doing for the victim 
does it actually matter in one sense what they do? Or is like that sort of overwhelming to go like, oh, this person's struggling, what, what should they do? But is it a more about them doing something than if it's the right, perfect action to solve all of their Yeah, problems? yeah. This is really good. So what will often happen when a victim is in a relationship and they have somebody, their family of origin or their boss or whatever is is uh, they feel helpless or powerless because this person is controlling them. They look to a rescuer. What a rescuer is going to want to do is give advice. And, uh, you know, I read somewhere it's kind of Google advice. (laughs) Like I looked up online and these are the three things that experts say that you're supposed to do given your situation. Um, Here's what's unhelpful about that is that as soon as a rescuer gives advice to a victim, a victim will always prove them wrong. And what ends up happening is the more advice a rescuer gives out of their anxiety, the more it actually disempowers the victim. Because the victim will, will try, they'll, they'll come back next week, and they'll say, I tried what you said and it didn't work, and here's the five reasons why it didn't work. And so what you're saying, Tara, is really, really helpful, that it's not so much what a victim does, it's if a victim does anything. So if I'm working with somebody, uh, counseling somebody who's feeling overwhelmed and powerless, uh, the best thing for them to do is what they come up with, not what I would come up with. And it really almost doesn't matter what that person does, just so long as they decide to take an active step forward out of being overwhelmed and feeling helpless. The best thing they can do is anything. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's funny because we feel as though there's a, there's a right way to get out of being a victim. And it just follow this advice. But it's actually missing the point. The problem is an opportunity The problem is choosing. And so if you feel overwhelmed, making any choice, it's perfect. It's victory. It's what God would want you to do. Because now you've moved out of this place and it took faith for you to do something. Uh, Remember what we said, faith without works is dead. That's what it says in James. So if you do anything, You're expressing faith in God. You're taking your confidence off of your abilities and you're trusting God to do something. If you're a persecutor, faith looks like dropping your guard and letting people inside. And not just controlling the situation, but actually being affected by other people, feeling their heartache, uh, identifying with what they're going through. If you're a persecutor, it takes faith for you to drop your guard and to feel compassion. You'll feel out of control. That's what faith looks like for you. Faith for a rescuer isn't just over-functioning. It's saying, hold on here. Father, what's truly helpful? And it's trusting that even though you don't do everything, you're actually being more helpful. And the rescuer will feel like they're under-functioning. They're not doing enough. But it takes faith to kind of take a step back and do what's truly helpful. <coughs> that's perfect, because that's actually someone's very next question, is if we notice someone exhibiting 
victim behavior, how can we encourage them without acting like a rescuer? Uh, for example, what sort of things can we say? So I feel like you started to answer some of yeah. that for us. Yeah, what would be a step forward would be a question. Uh, what would be a, even though you're being oppressed by your boss, you're being overwhelmed by your emotions, your past doesn't seem to, to set you free, what's a choice that you could make in the next few days that isn't submitting to that past or to that boss, but is doing what you believe before God is a thing that needs to be done? And you just ask an action question. For if you're, if you're dealing with this person, you're going to ask a feeling question. If you're dealing with a rescuer, you're going to ask a thinking question. You'll say, what do you think would be truly helpful? Not what feels helpful. What do you think would be helpful? You're asking a persecutor, how, how do you feel? How do they feel? You'll ask feeling questions. Super helpful. I interrupted you, though, I think. Yeah. Which follows up someone other's question is, um, how can we identify who we are more of? So I think that that sort of answers either one, because as you say, we do go between them. Yeah. And so what we're, what we're monitoring, when I, I talk about anxiety, I, I encourage people to kind of take your emotional pulse. And so in this moment, if I, uh, I, I mean, I've been doing this for a while, so I can tell when I'm in a moment, I can feel in my gut and in my head, when I'm starting to get anxious, in my head, I feel a little bit dizzy. In my gut, it kind of feels like I have a knot in my gut. And I go, ah, that's a sign of anxiety. Now, in that anxiety, am I feeling powerless? <clears throat> am I angry and wanting to blame? Or am I wanting to fix it? And so, as I, as I become aware of my anxiety... And I go, what do I feel like wanting to do right now? Do I feel like blaming, being helpless, or trying to fix everything? And so it's kind of, it's kind of putting the moment into slow motion and being prayerful and saying, Father, um, what is my anxiety tempting me to do right now? And then once I know what I'm being tempted to do, then I know what my solution would be, where I need to go toward thinking, feeling, or doing. All right. So why don't we go on? And we're going to apply this now to being single. Won't this be fun? So uh, what's going <clears> to... <throat> what we're going to talk about last week, what we talked about is, uh, is the fancy word is a dyad or uh, how two people get along. And we talked about being enmeshed or differentiated. And then today we said, we talked about instead of dyads, we talked about triads, triangles, and how we can move between these unhealthy ways of relating. So what we'll spend the remainder of our time doing tonight is we'll look at how this affects being single. Next time we're gonna be looking at how the dyad and triad thing affects marriage and then how it affects parenting. So. Let's look at then being single. We're back at your notes. <clears throat> An anxious pursuit of romantic love. So 
what I'm suggesting here, I'm not suggesting that all singles are looking for romantic love. I'm not trying to say that. But I am saying that when a single person is getting anxious about that, about are they going to find the love of their life? Are they going to find that special someone? What it can do is it can cause that person to swing. Uh, it can swing us between wanting to be enmeshed but feeling disengaged, which is, uh, which is like feeling hurt and self-protected. So here's the thing that is really, really helpful to understand. <clears throat> that when we're single, it's very tempting to imagine romantic love to be enmeshed. When you look at what the Hollywood portrayal of love is, it's actually not love, it's enmeshment. This is a fascinating thought because what we get presented in the, in the media and even what our, our own hearts desire is to have this special someone complete us, be everything to us, capture our imagination, fulfill our deepest longings. In psychology, what they say is that uh, what a healthy relationship looks like is there's you and there's me. And a healthy relationship has about this much overlap. An unhealthy relationship that's enmeshed has no overlap. There is only an us. There's no you and me. A disengaged relationship has no relationship at all. There's just a you and a me. A healthy relationship has this much overlap. Now, watch, and uh, if there's any teenagers, let me apologize in advance, but, but watch teenage love. And what you'll see in teenage love is almost always this where they spend most of the time on each other's lap. <laughs> there's, no, there's no physical distance. There's no emotional distance. And they love it. it, it they just go, wow, you know, he reads my mind or she reads my mind. This is amazing. I just can't believe I found the, you know, my soulmate. And then, and then what you'll find in teenage love almost always is this actually becomes suffocating and then they move to this. But then they miss that feeling of being in love. And so then they pop back up to here and they keep passing by what's healthy. Because this takes maturity. This and this do not take maturity. This is just pure emotion and feeling. And I, 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 I will be all that they want and they will be all that I want. It's unrealistic. It's not true. It's a fairy tale. This never exists. But then the pressure causes then heartache and brokenness. But then they long for maybe uh, we just need to communicate better. Or maybe I found the wrong person and I need to find a, another one to be enmeshed with. Ah, that's the problem. I just haven't found the right person. And they're thinking that the problem is the other person, which means they now become a persecutor, by the way. But 
They think that the problem is the other person. Actually, the problem is the expectation of what true love looks like. And so, as we're honest, that this actually isn't love at all. It's codependency or enmeshment or fusion. These are all psychological terms to describe this, wonderful terms. Um, what the enmeshed ideal, you can see in your notes, what the enmeshed ideal produces is rejection or a cold skepticism. So what happens is this, this didn't work. And so now I feel even more alienated than I did before I experienced this. And so what you'll find in people who date as teenagers, and this isn't necessarily always true, it's just often true, is that they will go through um, multiple relationships, hoping to find that special someone that will complete them. But each time they go through the cycle of having a serial relationships, each time they go through that cycle, it actually ends up causing them to be more and more distant from the opposite sex and from believing that love could ever happen. And so they become more hardened, more skeptical, more disillusioned, more bitter toward the opposite sex. And they go, this is, I don't know if I'll ever find true love. And they think that the problem is they've never found the special someone. The actual problem is their understanding of what love is, is built on anxiety. And here's the biblical word, idolatry. Enmeshed relationships are idolatrous relationships. It's expecting another human being to be everything. And this, of course, never happens. So, uh, so this then is, uh, this isn't being experienced. Keep hoping for this, but it actually drives us farther apart. Now, here's what's interesting about what the church's solution is to this. And I think it's actually quite mean. It's simply this. The church responds with, need God more. This is the classic response. If you're a single, let me just apologize on behalf of the church. And that uh, you'll have married couples who will sit down with a single person. They'll listen to their relational struggles. And then they'll go, oh, um, you're, you want an idolatrous relationship. And so what you need to do is you just need to need God more. You need to be more of a worshiper. And the single person says, it thinks in their head, I mean, because they're probably being polite, they think in their head, well, that's fine for you. You have a love of your life. And so it kind of becomes this double standard that, um, that single people are being expected to find a level of fulfillment in God that married people don't have to find. And it becomes really, really cruel. It... it um, it becomes unrealistic, and here's why. <coughs> Pardon me with my coughing today. <clears throat> There's a fascinating verse, and it's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. So this is uh, before the fall. So uh, Adam and God are in perfect relationship with one another. There is no sin. There's no broken relationship. They are in perfect communion or unity with one another, okay? And this is what God says 
about Adam uh, while being perfectly united with Adam. You'll see it in your notes. Genesis 2.18, God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. Alone? It's not good for the man to be alone, but he's in perfect harmony with God. I'll make a, I'll make a helper, a companion. I'll make Eve. What a fascinating thought that God is admitting in Scripture, I mean, <laughs> that he's not enough. Now, for sure he's enough, for sure he's God, for sure he, deeps our, he meets our deepest longings. But God designed us for relationship, for Trinitarian relationship. And even he is admitting that, um, that it's not enough to just have a relationship with God. There's something in our humanity that needs relationship with other people. This is just an, a fascinating thing. So, but what happens in the church is that this gets ignored. And I think there's a sinister reason why, but we'll get to it in a minute. Let's first of all draw what this unhealthy triangle is that the church presents to single people. It's in your notes, and I'll just uh, try to put it quickly up here. So here's the triangle that the church sets up for single people. So first of all, we have uh, down here, well, sorry, uh, let me say this. No, I'm saying it wrong. This is how a single person will feel being in the church. This, that's what I meant. So the, the, uh, the single person feels like a victimized single. They have needs, they have longings, and they feel helpless to be able to get those met. And so what are they looking for? They're looking for a rescuer, otherwise known as a lover. So I need somebody to complete me. And what the church ends up being is the persecutor. And the church says, your problem is you don't love God enough. You don't need God enough. You shouldn't run ask after a lover. You should be more devoted to God. Super cruel. What also happens is not only is the church often the persecutor, but sometimes God himself gets perceived that way, where the victim says, what do you want from me? I devote my whole life to you, and you don't want me to have a lover. You just want me totally for yourself. Well, I can't touch you or see you or feel you. And so God becomes the persecutor, preventing them from having a lover that really fulfills them. And so uh, in their anxiety, they distance themselves more and more from God, believing more and more that this is going to be the answer to their heart's longings. This is what we often find. This is, would be the classic Christian single triangle. <laughs> this is what we see. Now, how do we get out of this? How do we get out of this kind of triangle? <clears throat> let, me give, uh, let me give two verses and then try to explain this. And uh, again, you're going to have to stick with me, but I just think this is super, super important. And uh, I haven't been able to, 
say it as clearly as I hope I'm going to be able to say it tonight. Um, so let me read two verses. And this is going to kind of create a better triangle than the one that we get caught in. Often if you call yourself a Christian in a single. The first is Luke chapter 20. This is uh, Jesus talking about marriage. And listen to what he says. Those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead. So these are about people who are in Christ and who are going to live with Christ forever, live in heaven forever. Uh, They will neither marry nor be given in marriage. So the first thing that we see here is that marriage is not an eternal reality. This is a big deal. That uh, Jesus is suggesting that there's something more eternal than marriage. Now, when we look at the church, often the church idolizes marriage, that it's the pinnacle of relationship. And that uh, this is what we're this is what we're all trying to achieve in this life is to become married. It's the Holy Grail. But it says here in verse 36 that they are God's children. The eternal relationship is not between a husband and a wife, it's between brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the eternal relationship. Now, this is shocking that the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, the church is actually the eternal relationship, not marriage. And it goes even further. Look at Revelation 19.7. It says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. What is this referring to? This is referring to the church. And the church is the bride of Christ. That the eternal marriage is not between a human husband and a human wife. It's between the church and Jesus Christ. This is why there's no marriage in heaven. Because now we've left behind the shadow of marriage. And we're now experiencing the full reality of our union with Christ. What we were designed from the beginning of time to participate in. So there's a there's a there's a, a sentence in your notes that I think might be able to summarize the Christian message. But, but let's just see it we'll see if it holds water. But look at your notes. This is a summary of human history of what's going on. Our father created his children, to be a bride for his son. So our Father in heaven has created children to be wed to his son. These children will be full of the Holy Spirit. They will be made new from the inside out. And so uh, the Father then uh, creates children to be full of the Holy Spirit, and the Son dies for these children and is wed to them in a divine marriage. This is just uh, this is just mind-blowing stuff. 
So the ternal triad that we're looking at is, um, is that we have a person who is, um, who is in union with the Father and is one with God and is fully participating in church family. So, uh, me, you, in God. And somehow this God is being, we're in the family of God and we're in, uh, we're wed with Christ. I mean, but what we are designed, what we are, what, what uh, our life is moving towards is being brothers and sisters in Christ, wed to uh, and wed to Christ. That there is there is a role that church family plays in our life that no other human relationship can play, not even marriage. What we of course have done is we've said, person yes, God yes, uh, church family no, marriage yes. We've made our human marriage the completion of our life, not church family. Yet biblically, what we're to find is something about church family and something about God that ultimately completes us. So uh, let's then look at how this, uh, let's look at how, how this changes things. So, the church moves from being a persecutor. Remember the old triangle? Why don't you just uh, have a better relationship with God? The church moves from being a persecutor to being a family. I have this written in your notes, and um, I think it's true. I think it's true that single people help reveal how well a church is being a meaningful community or a spiritual family. Single people inside of the church reveal how healthy the church is. And if the church is just a collection of, uh, of natural families hanging out, singles will always feel excluded. But if the church knows that the ultimate relationship is to be brothers and sisters, is to be church family. If they understand what their real identity is, that we are the body of Christ, whatever metaphor you want to use, the temple of the Holy Spirit, whatever it is, if we understood who we really are, then singles become fulfilled in church. And being single is not just a intermediate time between being a child and getting married, a, a moment that you have to endure. But singles become evidence, if, if singles are able to thrive in church, it's evidence that the church understands what it's really about. This is just, to me, a remarkable idea. In Ephesians 2.22, it says, In Christ you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. 
So what this means then for uh, natural families, for couples and those with kids, is that we don't deny family. That would be ridiculous. We saw already in Genesis 2 that, uh, that a man and a woman are, be, are to be united. But what that family unit is supposed to do is serve a purpose greater than itself. In the moment that a husband and wife create a dyad, thinking that it's all about them, they'll miss the point and swing between being enmeshed and disengaged for their whole marriage. Or they'll offset their anxiety, have kids to distract themselves for a while, and then get divorced after that. Uh, I think about uh, I think about a family in our church that really exemplifies this to me, and it's the Montroys, where I've been in their house, and it seems as though it's just a center for young people, and uh, they always have some young person living with them, and I just I just love what that family represents. And it's what we long to represent in our home. I just love the fact that our backyard uh, always seems to be full of young people. Because what Debbie and I have committed to do is to not have a family that's just about her and I. It's our family is contributing to the church family. In that we see ourselves as judging the health of our marriage by how much we serve the church and not just serve ourselves. Of course, we need to build our marriage and and focus on that and be healthy or else we have nothing to give to the church. But healthy marriages and healthy natural families are always serving something greater than themselves. They're serving spiritual family. So a church then in a healthy triangle moves from being a persecutor, blaming uh, singles, for not having a good enough relationship with God, and they become the family that's actually fulfilling to a single person. That's what should be written here. Is a single person. There's, I've, I've recommended it as resources at the end of the notes. There's a book by Sam Albury, who's, um, who's a man who has struggled with same-sex attraction. He's committed himself to a life of celibacy and uh, just a remarkable man, a remarkable man. I've, I've read some of his stuff. Um, actually, our, uh, the president of our movement, Steve Merle, and his, and his son, William Merle, had, had a lunch with him a few months ago. And uh, just as we wanted to kind of build every nation to build a relationship with him. He's just a remarkable guy. He wrote a book called Seven Myths About Singleness. And one of the things that he talks about in his book, I highly recommend the book. I just think it's an excellent book. And one of the things that he he suggests there is, is the importance that a single person has for needing spiritual family. And that when the church is not being the church, singles get excluded and they look, for, they look for love in a lover instead of in God. Because the spiritual family is just not providing what they need. And so Sam Albury describes relationships where he goes on, uh, he has an, uh, one of the things that he does, he has annual, some annual events in his life. One of them is that he goes with a bunch of other men uh, every year camping. And these men 
are, are family to him. They're father figures to him. They're brothers to him. And they understand they're made better by having a relationship with Sam Albury. They need him. And he needs them. He also has been adopted by some natural families. And uh, I believe he's called Uncle Sam, which is not an American illusion <laughs> at all. He's British. But, uh, but he's, he's become an uncle to these, uh, to, uh, to these children. And he just gets to come over whenever he wants. There's this one family where they have a spare bedroom. He just comes over, stays overnight, and just hangs out with the family. Oh, that is just so healthy. It's healthy for the family. It's healthy for Sam. This is just such a big deal. You guys, I just feel as though we don't understand how significant church family is. And singles reveal the importance of it. All right. Uh, what, how, what else changes? Lovers move, back to your notes, lovers move from being rescuers or idols. This is the rescuer position in a single's life. And instead of God, it'll be a lover. But now in this healthy triangle, a lover is no longer a God replacement. Now that lover is a mediator to this person's relationship with God. They don't replace God. They become a channel of God's blessings. They shift from being a source of love to a channel of God's love. So uh, what then happens is that the lover has a right relationship with this person, not trying to be a God replacement, but a source of God's love. And that just changes everything. If you um, are going to engage in a dating relationship with somebody who does not have a vibrant relationship with God, they will always position themselves to be an idol, which means they will always ultimately disappoint you because they can't be God. They can be a channel for God to love you, but they can't replace God's love for you. And so one of the primary criteria that, that as a single person, if you want to engage in a dating relationship, is, is this person uh, leading me towards God? or trying to have a position in my heart that shoves God out. You can tell if they're doing this by, if, by how demanding they are of you, by, uh, by the role that they want to have in your heart, and by how their own personal relationship with God is in relationship with the church. <clears throat> so they become mediators. Ephesians 5 talks about how relationships, even in marriage, are always pointing one another to Christ. It's what's always going on in the Bible. And then finally, uh, singles move from being victims. This is the victim posture. Singles move from being victims to being spiritual leaders in the community and in the world. They can have an undivided devotion to God. This is what's described in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says, he who marries, the virgin does right. So we're not trying to go all weird here and say nobody should ever get married. But he who does not marry her does even better. <laughs> so Paul is saying that, um, that single person, you have a unique opportunity 
you're closer to the heavenly triangle than a married person is. Because the married person has divided loyalties. Your loyalties don't have to be divided. You can be fully connected to God, fully engaged in church family, because these are the things that are the eternal reality, and you're just one step ahead of the married person. This is Paul's argument. Isn't that great? It goes on to say, an unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. Can you just believe something? I know it's going to be hard to believe because of the society that we live in and because of what's in our own human hearts. But can you believe that this is, a, this is not the whole truth, but this is, but this is true? Is that marriage is a compromise. And in 1 Corinthians 7, it's described as having a divided heart. Now, we can redeem that, of course, by making those relationships about Jesus. But, uh, but being single is the opposite of being second-rate in the family of God. This is why uh, Every Nation Campus Ministry is so important in our church. It's not some side parachurch ministry that we like to endorse because we should be investing in the next generation. That what we say with Every Nation Campus is that the single people in our church are a priority and we are, we are, they, are the, they are the leaders, uh, not just of the church of tomorrow, but of today. And that it's our privilege as older people to be building into these people and to see them maximize their single years. Whether those single years last for 5, 20, or their whole life. But that it's our privilege to invest in those single people because they can do something that married people can't. And it's what 1 Corinthians 7 says. To be wholly devoted to the Lord. And to be about the Lord's work. I remember my son Jonathan describing his fruitfulness. As you know, uh, I think many of you know that he was involved in, in working with a bunch of other youth pastors in the city to try to reach uh, high school campuses with the gospel. And I remember him saying to me, Dad, one of the keys to my ability to do this is the fact that I'm single. That as soon as somebody says, do you want to go out for a coffee? I can say yes. <laughs> I, just, I just have undivided time. I can, be, I can throw myself wholly into this. That there was something about being single that allowed him to be a spiritual leader in our city that has to be considered. And so my hope for you, if you are a single person, is whatever you do, don't view being single as, an oper- as a time in which you have to hold your breath until you get married, and then you can really do some stuff for Jesus. Absolutely not. The single years are pivotal in, uh, in, in that group of people building the church through an undivided devotion to God that is thoroughly unique to their life circumstance. So you can see then, in conclusion, you can see that Triangles are unavoidable. As a single person, just like with married and with parenting, we'll talk about that in the coming weeks, that 
you're going to get caught in a triangle. But as a single person, if you're anxious about your singleness, then what you're going to end up doing is finding a God replacement, otherwise known as a lover. The church and God are going to become persecutors. And you're going to find yourself feeling more helpless and hopeless and removed from having a fulfilled heart. But as you let the gospel penetrate your heart, and as Jesus Christ comes and fills you from the inside out, your anxiety goes down, you now receive your singleness, and now it becomes an opportunity to have an incredibly unique relationship with God and a unique relationship with the church that the church desperately needs in order to be healthy, and that you desperately get to experience because God will become your fulfillment. And so as we admit our anxiety and see how we treat the opposite sex, the church, God, uh, and we present that anxiety to God and ask him to heal us with his gospel and saving power, we're able to enter into a new triangle that is, that is in no way a compromise but it's actually the perfect image of the coming kingdom. And you as a single person have a mandate to turn the eyes of the church to what is ultimately and eternally going on and not let married people or families distract us from the eternal reality. And so I want to commission you to receive your calling because it's absolutely indispensable in the kingdom of God. And I would venture to say it's what the kingdom is built on. So uh, can you please receive your endorsement from Jesus as who you have been commissioned to be in this season for as long as this season lasts? All right, that's enough talking. Uh, perhaps we can open it up to some questions and see if there's any questions or comments in the last few minutes that we have together here. Thanks so much, Pastor Greg. That was so helpful. I've been getting questions from people over this last while. Um, so one of the things you talked about, inviting people into our families. Um, but I don't know, because that's not always something our culture finds very normal. I think sometimes people fear that it would look like maybe a weird aunt or uncle, whether that's from the side of the family not knowing how to do it naturally or the side of the single not knowing how to engage in that naturally. Yeah. Well, really, um, any family is awkward if you've ever been part of one. <laughs> and so, um, uh, you know, you, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of an overly simplistic idea, but if, uh, if you have had, if you are married, you have more than one kid, um, and that second child comes along, what has to happen to the whole family? It's not just an insertion of another human being into a family unit. Actually, the whole family unit changes because that, uh, that child came along. And so uh, it's true that if a single person comes and joins themselves to a family, or the family joins themselves to a single person, it will require an adjustment. But that's the beauty of family. Families are designed to be living, growing organisms. 
In the moment we try to freeze frame a family and hold it in a moment of time is the, is the exact moment in which that family becomes dysfunctional. You think of a, you think of a, a, a classic mother who doesn't want their children to grow up. You know, they just want to keep them cute and small <laughs> and not a teenager. <laughs> and the, as soon as you try to, 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 to take a, a family and to just, to just capture it in a moment, it stops being what it's designed to be. And so families, by their very nature, are, des are designed to grow and to be inclusive realities. And so, as a single person can leave behind their insecurity and say, it's good for me to be here. And as a family will not feel threatened by that single person, but say, it's good for us that you're here. Now everything becomes a mutual blessing. So I think of all the different people that we've had in our home. And some of those people have actually, quite honestly, been quite challenging, uh, even hurtful. But at the end of the day, my, my children have said, we're better because we've had an inclusive family. We're better. We're better people, and we actually have a stronger family because we, de we decided to make our family serve something bigger than itself, and that's the kingdom of God. Yeah, Tara, you and Paul have just done such a remark. You're another example of a, of a, I know there's lots of examples in our church, but you guys have been such a powerful example of that. And I think you're absolutely right. Everybody gets blessed. Yeah, so we're back to this idea that society and our own anxiety say that this is the ultimate kind of relationship. It's enmeshment. And there's something in our anxious hearts that's, that makes this the ideal. And so how do we move toward a healthier experience of relationship? It's engaging in the family. There's just This is why... You know, sometimes I, 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 I'll get frustrated, to be honest with you, that when we talk about discipleship in our church, uh, I, uh, sometimes people have said that, oh, you're just, you know, using me as a cog in the machine to grow the church and to reach the city. But what about me? You know, I feel like I'm just being used for this greater cause. And I'm thinking, no, discipleship isn't just meant to save lost people, it's meant to save us. That uh, I just, 
it, it's, it's, you know, I, it just came to mind this last week, somebody uh, wrote me a very kind text. They, they live in another part of the world and, uh, and we spent time together, but I didn't, I didn't know any of these things. And, and he, he writes and says, um, you know, I want to thank you for what you modeled to me and that I've tried to model my marriage and my parenting after what you've done. And I want you to know that my wife is my best friend and our, all of our kids love Jesus. And it's because you showed me what a healthy relationship would look like. And so I'm sorry that that's about me, but, and I, I'm sure he, he if he would have got to know me better, <laughs> I could have undermined that easily. But, um, but the point is, is that the only way that we're going to move out of this is if we have some examples. And these examples aren't ready-made, they're worked out together. When I was first married, and I still feel this way now, I'm still figuring it out. But I'm figuring out in the context of my church family. And so, uh, to move out of dysfunction, we need to be part of a, of a growing organism that is self-aware enough to know what unhealth is, and then to help one another find a better way of relating. It's not magic, it's intimacy, it's connection, it's humility, it's letting ourselves be part of a D group, receiving feedback. In my D group, we're constantly talking about us being, how we're being parents, how we're being friends, how we're being, uh, we're men, so how we're being husbands, and we're working it through together. And we're saying, okay, I know that that isn't good, and I know that this isn't good either. So how are we actually going to do this? And we talk, and we pray, and we figure it out together. The solution is, is drawing close to one another in discipleship relationships. And I just don't see a way around this. If it wasn't for people pouring into my life, there's just no way I could figure any of this out. I needed uh, godly men in my life. I needed examples of marriages, examples of single people. And their gift to me is absolutely irreplaceable. So I just think it's about coming together and figuring it out together. I wish there could be a more profound thought, but I just think that's what it's about. Super important. In all the different areas that we are in our life to admit what's hard about them, to admit what might not be easy, and then figure out how we bring that together and are unified. Yes. Thank you. That just, I'm sorry that I didn't say it earlier because that needs to be said. That if you're single um, and God has put it in your heart to long for somebody to share your life with, we don't deny that. You don't have to apologize for that or say that that's somehow about being uh, a, a lesser Christian or a lesser person, that you receive that as God putting that in your heart. And so you can pray for it. You can strategize towards it. Uh, all that's great. But while you're still single, don't 
forget how important this moment is. Don't let your future longings steal away the value that you have right now. And that's the tension that you have, isn't it? Is to be able to um, have a longing, but in that longing, still know that there's something important that you can participate in that's thoroughly irreplaceable. So thank you for saying that. That's really important. That's right. Yes. So um, this is a message as much to married people as it is to single people. And to married people, it's saying, could you please value this and not idolize marriage? And if you've been married for a while, you know that that's not a good idea, <laughs> that there is no husband or wife that's ever going to fulfill you. So, um, So please, you know, if you're talking to single people, Let's move toward this and not toward them feeling bad. What then is advice to give? I think that advice is, uh, it's very simple to me. It's, um, it's you look for somebody who really loves Jesus and knows how to have a personal relationship with God. Because if they don't have a personal relationship with God, they're then going to set you up to be their idol, or you're going to do that to them, and then the whole thing will be unhealthy. So they need to be able to have a meaningful, life-giving relationship with God. Secondly, you need to uh, enjoy them. Really complicated. But sometimes Christians can just be weird and say, you know, I don't really like you, but God told me that we were supposed to marry. I mean, it's just weird. But you should be able to laugh together and respect the other person and enjoy who they are. And so just enjoy them. And then I think the final one would be maturity. And maturity is the ability to work through difficult things together in such a way that you get closer to one another and closer to God. I've, I've said this in other places, but when I used to go around on college campuses um, doing that love, sex, and relationship uh, seminar, one of the questions, we did a questionnaire on the campus, and then I would refer to it in the talk. And one of the questions was, what do you look for most in a future spouse? Maturity was one of the options, and it was usually only about 20% of the respondents said maturity. And every time I saw that, my mouth just dropped. That I'm thinking, what else is there? <laughs> like, if, if, if the person isn't mature then it doesn't matter how good-looking or funny or popular or whatever they are, it'll all be a waste if you guys are fighting and hating one another and you can't work through difficulties. So 
let them have a vibrant relationship with God, enjoy who they are, and before you get married, have enough arguments to make sure that you know how to process things uh, in a healthy way together. And if those, if those things are there, then I think you're going to have a great marriage. Um, and if you don't see those things in a future spouse, um, you know, keep shopping. <laughs> so, uh, is that a good place to end? I don't know if that's a, a place to end, but there we go. <clears throat> Can I maybe... Good, good. Well, I'd love to be able to pray for us if that's okay. Father, I thank you so much for everyone who's listening. And Father, I pray that this would be life-giving for all concerned. There are people who are listening to this who just would really love to be married. And you've heard the desires of their heart. I just read that in the Psalms this morning in my devotions. You hear the desires of their heart. And so, Father, I pray that you would come near them in those desires and that you would fulfill their heart's desires. But, Father, I pray that in this time, that this moment would not be lost for, this, for a future longing, but that today would have meaning. And who knows, that maybe even today could become fulfilling. So give them hope for today as much as for tomorrow. And for those who are married, Father, I pray that they would have a wider home, a home that would be more inclusive and that couples would be able to dream together about what it means to be a family that promotes church family, spiritual family, and how to live in a more inclusive way. And Father, I pray in all of these things, you would increase our devotion of you because without the saving work of Jesus Christ transforming our hearts, we will default into unhealthy triangles. And so it's you that we want to be defined by. It's you that we place our hope. And it's you that is our Lord and our Savior. And so I ask that you would flood into our lives, flood into our relationships, that we could find you in those places. In Jesus' name, amen.